Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 1 again. Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> this is our third week in Luke chapter 1. And we're having to move quickly, averaging probably 25 verses a week, to even make it to Jesus' birth by Christmas morning. Something strange about this, don't you think? The story of Jesus doesn't begin with his birth. In fact, the account of John's birth, which we look at uh, this morning, is even slightly longer than the account of Jesus' birth. God must have some agenda that we don't quite understand yet. Well, let me read it, a lengthy section this morning, the account of John's birth, and then the uh, song that Zechariah, his father, uh, um, sang or spoke uh, in response. Picking up with verse 57, reading to the end of the chapter. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and uh, they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, his name is to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made a sign to his father to find out what he would name the son, the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was on him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Let me set this uh, section before you this morning with two truths, one about each of these two sections. The first truth is this. Blessed are those who follow through. Blessed are those who follow through. From the time you played on a little league baseball team, someone's been telling you the importance of follow through. You don't just bunt at the ball, you swing at it from start to finish with all your might. And then it was the key to shooting hoops as you got a little older. You got to follow your shot. And then maybe you started playing golf, and uh, this was a key thing about the golf swing. You got to follow through. It's the most important thing. Until finally you realize this is just how it works in the world. This is how you do business. The sale is not enough. You have to follow through with good service. 
And dreams are not enough. Ideas are not enough. You have to do the things that put them into practice. Through all of life, it's true. Blessed are those who follow through. Well, I would suggest the same thing's true in our walk with God. I think of a well-known verse in Hosea 6.6, which Jesus repeated frequently. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The word mercy there is that old familiar Hebrew word chesed, which means loving loyalty or covenant faithfulness. In other words, Jesus was saying, God's saying in the Old Testament, I am not impressed with your religious words and rituals. I want to see faithfulness in your life. Blessed are those who follow through. Well, here in Luke 1, we see a great example of follow-through faith on the part of the old priest, Zechariah. Our story opens with what appears to be a pretty normal picture of Jewish life. A baby is born, right on schedule. Um, Friends and relatives come and they share the excitement. On the eighth day, he's taken to the temple to be circumcised, just like the Jewish law prescribed. And everyone assumes he's going to be named Zechariah after his dear father, just uh, as was the custom of the day. Everything seemed pretty normal. Or was it? You see, this baby was not normal at all. Both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were way too old to have children. And the conception of this child had been supernaturally announced by the angel Gabriel as Zechariah ministered in the temple, you remember? There the angel had specifically said the baby should be named John. The promise of this birth, in fact, was so unusual that Zechariah had trouble believing that and had questioned it, and so the angel had made him unable to hear or speak. Indeed, even the pregnancy had known some quite unusual moments, like the time that this baby, still in Elizabeth's womb, leaped when entering the presence of Jesus still in Mary's womb. All these events had been far from normal. So now at the time of the baby's circumcision, a dispute arises over what he's going to be named. Everyone assumes he's going to be named Zechariah after his father. His mother says, no, we're going to name him John. But the larger family is insistent. You know how that is. Families can be terribly insistent. No, no one of your relatives is named John. Where'd you get that idea? That's nuts. We're going to name him Zechariah. And finally, the question falls into the lap of dear old, silent, deaf, mute Zechariah. What will be his name? Oh, do you see the issue that Zechariah faces here? It's more than just the sound of a name. The issue was profound. Was this whole event of this birth of this baby, who we call John the Baptist, was this just normal business as usual, or was this birth an expression of God's great hand at work as Zechariah had been told? After all these months, were the things Zechariah saw and heard in the temple true, Or was it just a moment of emotion uh, which no longer really meant anything? Most specifically, did the angel command him to name this baby John? Or was he free to just name him after himself like everybody did? Well, Zechariah may have faltered in his faith at the start, but he does not stumble 
at the finish line. His name is John, he wrote on his tablet. For this was not just another baby born in Judea. This birth was evidence of the unfolding great saving plan of God. And this choice was not a matter of personal preference or family tradition. This was a matter of obedience to God. And suddenly Zechariah's mouth was opened and he began to utter the hymn of praise that we have that we'll look at in a moment. Blessed are those who follow through. Does that describe your faith? I suspect we've all had some kind of experience like Zechariah's, not exactly his, but we've learned something from God's word and suddenly his will has become clear and unequivocal. But then it begins to get complicated and time erodes the sense of urgency that we felt then and friends and family question, perhaps even laugh at our crazy ideas. And before long, what we once saw as an urgent matter of obedience doesn't seem to matter so much. It's kind of lost in all the discussion. I mean, after all, what difference do a few details make? Oh, but you see, the follow-through is specifically a matter of the details. Our faith is not just about hearing God's Word, it's about doing it. It's not just about knowing good theology, it's about loving God and loving one another enough to give ourselves as God gave himself for us. And it's not just about talking the talk, it's about walking the walk. Blessed are those who follow through. I don't know what promises you may have made and now neglected, what truths you've understood and then ignored, what, what passes you've gloriously caught and then dropped the ball on the way to the finish line. But this morning I call you to stop pretending that it doesn't matter. Return to the Lord, seeking forgiveness and grace to live faithfully again. And to the extent possible, go back and finish what you started and then abandon. Repair what you've broken and then neglected. Keep the promises you made. Begin again. For blessed are those who follow through. Well, that's the first point. But then the bulk of our text is this song of praise which Zechariah uttered at uh, the birth of his son, John. Which brings us to a second point. Similar to the first, God followed through and kept his covenant. God followed through and kept his covenant. This song of praise, uh, recorded in verses 68 to 79, has come to be known as the Benedictus. That's from the Latin word for praise or bless. We hear it in the word benediction. Uh, that, that, that's how this psalm begins. Blessed, praise be God. According to verse 64, this was Zechariah's grateful response when his speech returned. But at the same time, according to verse 67, this was a prophecy inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And what does the song of blessing proclaim? It proclaims, blessed is the Lord who has followed through and kept his promises, his covenant, you see, God is the subject of this song. In, in fact, he's the subject of almost every sentence here. He's the one who made the promises, and he's the one who has now begun to keep them. And all those promises focus on the covenant he made with Abraham. 
the promises which Abraham received by faith way back in the book of Genesis. We can see that God's covenant keeping is the focus of this song. By examining the way it's written, the compositional structure of this song. In these verses, we have again what we call a chiasm or a chiasmus. Uh, we saw one of these in the study of uh, Jonah, remember, talked about it a bit. It's a liter- literary device where uh, we have a set of themes that are developed, and then those same themes are uh, developed again in reverse order and come back down so that it, if you graph it all out, it forms like a big X with the central thought here, the focus of all of these themes. And that's what we have here. We have uh, these parallel words that uh, start at the end and focus toward the middle. So, for example, we have a reference to come or visit in verse 68, and uh, there it is again in verse 78. And then we have a reference to his people in verse 68, and there it is again in verse 77. And then we have a reference to salvation in verse 69, and there it is again in verse 77. And a reference to the prophets in verse, seven, seven, in verse 70, and again in verse 76. And a reference to the hand of the enemy in verse 71, and again in verse 74. A reference to the fathers in verse 72, and again in verse 73. And finally, right at the center of the song, a reference to God's oath, and to his covenant in verses 72 and 3. That's the focus of Zechariah's praise. God has kept his covenant. Bless him for he has followed through on the oath that he swore to his people. Well, so what does that mean? That God has followed through and kept his covenant. Well, in this song there are clearly two parts God's faithfulness takes shape in two ways. So we see, first of all, God kept his covenant, followed through, in that Jesus comes to deliver his people. That's what we find in verses 68 to 75. Let me read it again. (coughs) Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah praises God because he has sent the Messiah to deliver. He sees that about to happen. Zechariah undoubtedly expected deliverance to come in political and military terms. God's people lived under Roman rule. They were occupying troops in the streets of their cities. They looked forward to a day when God would raise up a warrior king like like King David had been who would come and drive the pagans out of their streets and would secure the land against intruders and would execute justice so that God's people could live in freedom. Zechariah saw Messiah coming. And he saw that promise of deliverance beginning to take place. Of course, that's not exactly how it played out, is it? So Christians have adjusted our expectations. Some say, well, God went to a different plan now, and he's going to return to that plan later. Or others say, well, God did do what Zechariah expected, but in some obscure way that's kind of difficult to actually describe. Mostly Christians just spiritualize this. 
We talk about Jesus delivering us from our personal sins and our personal problems. We talk about God freeing us from the dominion of Satan and of sin and death. And and all of that's very true. But while it is all not all happened yet, may I suggest that this hope of total salvation is really nothing less than the total deliverance that Zechariah envisioned. That's what Jesus taught us to pray for. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth like it is in heaven. That's the hope the apostles hold before us. The apostle Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians, God will pay back trouble to those who trouble his people and give us relief. This will happen when Jesus, the Lord Jesus appears from heaven with blazing fire. He will both deliver his people and bring judgment on his enemies. The Apostle Peter had the same hope as he wrote in 2 Peter 3. In keeping with his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. That's what the Apostle John saw in the Revelation. When I, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. (coughs) Zechariah was not wrong here. Jesus came to deliver his people and deliver he will. That's why during this Advent season we don't just look back to Christ appearing in a body in a man- as a baby in a manger. We look forward to his appearing in glory and a new heaven and a new earth. For God follows through keeping his covenant. Jesus comes to be our deliverer. And this morning, I tell you, when he comes, the earth will shake and governments will fall. And people who do not know him will be filled with terror at his judgment. But those who know him will finally enjoy all the glories of his kingdom. So this morning, I call on you to refuse to give up on God's promises. Don't quit believing. Don't abandon God's word. Don't walk away thinking it no longer matters. God has not forgotten his promises. What he said he will do. He proved it once. He will prove it again. That's the exhortation of that Christmas hymn, which we seldom sing, but it's so profound. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Yet pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth goodwill to men God follows through he keeps his covenant Jesus is the deliverer oh but you see that part of the fulfillment raises a question a problem for 
If only righteousness and justice will exist in God's kingdom, who can possibly be part of it? Who's righteous enough? Will we be able to stand on that day? Which brings us to the need for the second half of this song of praise. And the second truth, that God keeps his covenant in that Jesus first visits us with mercy. Look at it again in verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. This part of Zechariah's song concerns his newborn son, John. Zechariah says he will be a prophet who goes before the Lord to prepare the way. But you see, the very existence of a forerunner signals the fact that God's plan to save is more elaborate than we might have first thought. Apparently, it will unfold in phases. Otherwise, why was a forerunner like John even needed? Uh, Why didn't Jesus, Jesus just ride in on a white stallion and Boom, it's judgment day and everything's made right. Frederick Godet, the Swiss theologian of the 19th century, gives us a good answer to the question, why a forerunner like John? Let me read what he says. Because the very notion of salvation was falsified in Israel and had to be corrected before salvation could be realized. A carnal and malignant patriotism had taken possession of the people and the rulers. And the idea of a political deliverance had been substituted for that of a moral salvation. There was needed then another person divinely authorized to remind the people that perdition consists not in subjection to the Romans, but in divine condemnation. And that salvation was not temporal emancipation, but the forgiveness of sins. I suggest we've sometimes fallen into the same trap. We want God to save us from trouble, from unemployment, from sickness, from unhappiness. We want God to make us successful and affluent and politically powerful in the world. Meanwhile, we often care very little about the wickedness of our own hearts, and our lack of love for God, and the coldness of our zeal for righteousness, and the alienation of our own families, and the threat of God's condemnation hanging over us. That's why before God comes to deliver his people from wickedness, which we all share in, Jesus must first visit us with mercy. God's first concern is not to change the world so that we might enjoy it. His first concern is to change us, that we might be holy, that we might become God's agents of change in this wicked world. And that's exactly what Zechariah prophesies in these verses we just read, verse 76 to 79. In verse 77, yes, God's salvation was appearing, but it was not as expected. Messiah would bring the forgiveness of our sins, not judgment on our enemies. Verse 78, he would exhibit tender mercies, not unbending retribution. 
Verse 79, he would enlighten those sitting in darkness rather than casting them out. He will guide the alienated into peace with God and with one another. Verse 76, the task of Zechariah's son John would be to prepare God's people for God's great salvation by changing their expectations and calling them to repentance. As Godet again explains, he was to show this people who believed all they needed was political restoration, that they were no less guilty than the heathen, and that they needed just as much divine pardon. That was precisely the meaning of the baptism to which John invited the Jews. God has kept his covenant more perfectly and wisely than we might ever have dreamed For in Jesus, God first visits us with his mercy. What great truths are set before us this morning. Blessed are those who follow through. True faith is like that. Not a flash in the pan, but attention to the details of faithfulness. And God has followed through, keeping his covenant. Jesus is coming to deliver us. God has not forgotten. But first he visits us with mercy that we might be saved. You see, by presenting Zechariah's song, the Benedictus, Luke sets before Theophilus, to whom he wrote, and to us, the beginning of this startling gospel that this book contains. It's the message of God visiting his people with a redemption that dwarfs the Exodus, with a kingdom that dwarfs the Davidic era, creating a people who fulfill the promises made to Abraham that night when he was staring at the stars. But this age of Messiah is not what we might have expected. It begins with our own need of forgiveness rather than guns blazing at our enemies. It reaches to the most unlikely needy people, not those already almost good enough. And it is a way of peace, not military victory. What boggles the mind, Theophilus is in ours. But it was there from the beginning, from Luke chapter 1. It was there in the prophecies. Luke didn't even make it up. God spoke it through Zechariah. God's great plan took on flesh in Jesus on the night he was born. How silently, how silently this wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming. But in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, we tend to turn your promises of deliverance and salvation into what we want them to be. We have enemies we want punished. We have things that we want to be given. We have an agenda of how we want our lives to be and the world to be. Forgive us, Lord. 
we need to sit and listen to you and see what you're doing. And to be confronted by the fact that first you contend to address us in our need. So during this Christmas season, I pray that we would be open to your work in us. You give us humble hearts, repentant hearts. Lord, to receive you as you are, not as we wish you were or thought you were going to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.